Welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. I'm your host, Jeremy Walker, and this podcast is sponsored by Media Gratii. You can find more about their ministry at mediagratii.org, including podcasts like this one, and indeed a biographical film of the life of Charles Spurgeon through the eyes of Spurgeon that was made a few years ago. We hope you'll find those useful. Uh, This particular podcast is one which concentrates on the preaching and teaching of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, not because we venerate the man, but we do appreciate the gifts that God gave him as a preacher of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, and seeking to learn as Christians, and for some of us perhaps as ministers of the gospel, each week we spend some time reading through the uh, the Spurgeon sermons that were preached and published in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, and then we choose a featured sermon for this podcast so that we can concentrate on the particular one. And this week we are looking at a sermon 854 called Fire, the Want of the Times. It's uh, part of the sequence for this week, 850 to 856, which you can follow at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter. But if you want this particular sermon and you can't find it yourself, then sign up at mediagratii.org podcasts and they'll send you, God willing, an email each week with a link to that weekly sermon so that you can read and follow along. So with that in mind, we turn this week to the sermon from Luke chapter 12 and verse 49. I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? It was preached on the 7th of February, 1869. That was a Lord's Day morning at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. Spurgeon begins by reminding us that our Lord was certainly alluding to the opposition and persecution which the gospel would excite. That's clear from the context. But uh, the suggestion that Spurgeon makes is that the language that is used and the illustration of fire actually bears a far wider application, that Christ is emphasizing the gospel as an ardent, fervent, flaming thing, a subject for enthusiasm, a theme for intense devotion, a matter which excites men's souls and stirs them to the lowest depths. For this reason, mainly, it arouses hostility. So there's something fiery in the gospel itself that provokes opposition and persecution. And that's what Spurgeon wants to emphasize this morning. This is the nature of the fire that our Lord intends to kindle, the fiery nature of the religion of Jesus Christ. And so it needs to begin with the history of the gospel. And we just pause to note that Spurgeon is, again, doing something slightly different to what he does with some of his other sermons. Uh, There's a, a typical pattern of announcing the headings of the sermon fairly early on after the introduction, but Spurgeon isn't bound to that. Here then, he just wants us to think first of the history of the gospel. And practically, so far as the most of us are concerned, he says, it begins with a revelation contained in this book. And you can almost imagine him at this point either picking up or pointing to or even bringing his fist down upon the Bible, this book, the Scriptures. We come to this book to find out what the gospel is. And we find in it, he says, the master truth of the love of God plainly and repeatedly stated. 
we see revealed to us a love of God so vast as to be incomprehensible, so generous as to be a theme for adoring wonder throughout eternity, since the Father gives up his equal Son, that he may bleed and die, that we who are rebellious and undeserving may live through him. As we believe the doctrine of divine love, we feel it to be a truth which sets the soul on fire with joy, gratitude and love. And that's the kind of phrase then that he's going to pick up again and again as he thinks about the revelation of Scripture and then these other elements. He goes on, as we read, we perceive that divine love has been manifested in connection with a most astonishing display of justice and severity towards sin. We behold the Saviour bleeding on the tree as much to manifest the justice as the love of God. And now as we behold our Lord's passion, thoughts that burn fall into our bosom. Holy detestation of sin lifts the torch of heart-searching and the flame of true love burns up our lusts. Again, there's that fiery language. He dies, the friend of sinners dies, murdered by human sin. Who will not henceforth loathe the murderous thing? It's impossible to read aright in the illuminated volume of the cross, printed in crimson characters, without feeling our hearts burn within us with an ardour unquenchable. And then as we study the gospel, we see that eternal salvation by grace is freely proclaimed to everyone that believes in Christ. This creates at first a fire of opposition to the doctrine of free grace. It offends man's pride. But before long, through God's Spirit, Another fire burns in our soul of intense gratitude that God should condescend to make a covenant with man. So you've almost got this idea of the gospel going like a flame through the world and lighting things up in the hearts of men as it travels. He goes on, take any other truth of the gospel and you'll find it to be of the same energetic or we might even say incandescent character as, for instance, that of the universal priesthood of all believers. That will provoke those who like to reserve for themselves the the dominion of the priest as they think of it. But if the gospel of Jesus Christ brings us to this, then it sets our heart ablaze to burn with zeal. Spurgeon says, if the gospel of Christ had been a mystic philosophy which only a few could comprehend, it would not have been a matter of fire. If it had been a mere pompous ceremonial which the people could only look upon and admire, it would have had no ardent influence. If it had been a mere orthodoxy to be learnt by heart and to be accepted every jot and tittle thereof without consideration, or if it had been a mere law of civilities and legalities, a mere ordinance of propriety and rule and regulation, it would never have been what Christ says it is. But inasmuch as it is a principle which affects the heart, which takes possession of our entire manhood, changes, renews, uplifts and inspires us, making us akin with God and filling us with the divine fullness, it becomes in this world a thing of flame and fire, burning its way to victory. And so Christ can rightly say, I am come to send fire on the earth. Spurgeon then says he's commenced the history of the gospel with the book, but he wants us to remember it's not a mere writing. So we suppose now a preacher whom God has truly called to the work proclaims this gospel, and you'll see a second time that the gospel is indeed a thing of fire. Here's his description. Observe the man. If God hath sent him, he is little regardful of the graces of oratory. He counts it sheer folly that the servants of God should be the apes of Demosthenes and Cicero. He learns in another school how to deliver his master's message. 
He comes forward in all sincerity, not in the wisdom of words, but with great plainness of speech, and tells to the sons of men the great message from the skies. The one thing of all others he abhors is to deliver that message with bated breath, with measured cadence and sentences that chill and freeze as they fall from ice-bound lips. He speaks as one who knows that God had sent him, like a man who believes what he says, and moreover feels that his message is a burden on his own soul, a burden which he must be delivered from, a fire within his bones which rages till he gives it vent, for woe is unto him if he preach not the gospel. I would not utter too sweeping a sentence, but I will venture to say that no man who preaches the gospel without zeal is sent of God to preach at all. Well, you may say that's not too sweeping a sentence, but I fear that it actually throws a, a shade upon many who today step into the pulpit and deliver those measured cadences and those lifeless sentences that chill and freeze as they fall from ice-bound lips. The man who feels nothing of the weight and the, the beauty and the, the, the passion of the thing that he speaks from God is not a man sent of God. The absence of enthusiasm in a sermon is fatal. It is the lack of its essential element, the one thing needful to raise the discourse above the level of a mere essay. Spurgeon is telling us that if there is no affection, if there's no lifting up of the spirit, yes, in accordance with the character and gifts of the man in the pulpit, but if there's no true spiritual enthusiasm, then the sermon is nothing more than a, than a homily, a toothless and tame homily. Mark, my brothers, he says, that the fire in the preacher sent of God is not that of mere excitement, nor that alone of an intelligent judgment acting upon the passions, but there is also a mysterious influence resting on God's servants which is irresistible. It is the blessing, the operation of the Holy Ghost himself. And that's something that no mere man can, can replicate. Then, in tracing this history of the gospel, remember you've got the book, you've got the preacher, now the hearers, the effect of the preaching of such a man as he has described. You have a sinner now who's heard of Jesus and believes in him. Mark well the joy he feels. The fire flakes have descended upon his cold heart and now he's alive to Christ. He's not like a man who's learned fresh mathematical truth of a cold, unemotional nature, but he's ready to clap his hands. He has as much as he can do to restrain himself. He feels so overjoyed. Do you observe that man who has now heard the gospel for some months? Do you notice that the fire still continues to burn within him? He gives to the cause of God what seems to others to be a lavish waste. He does for Christ what some would think to be a work of fanaticism. He's bold, he's in earnest, he's mighty in prayer. He is, in fact, consecrated, given up, devoted. The zeal of God's house hath eaten him up, as it did the psalmist, so that his meat and his drink is to do the will of him that sent him. Herein ye see the true character of the gospel, says Spurgeon. Like fire it thaws the iceberg heart, it makes the iron flow forth to be moulded into a divine shape. It sets the sacrifice on a blaze, and man's whole nature goes up in sacred smoke of gratitude and praise to the Most High. And now, as surely as God glorifies his truth and gives seals to the Christian ministry, says our preacher, opposition is aroused. There's antagonism, there's aggression, 
The fire of the preacher's earnestness is met by the fire of human malice. Now we know which of the two fires will win the day. In these times, he says, we're screened by a gracious providence from the satanic cruelty of persecution. Nowadays it takes another shape. The preacher is no sooner successful than it is reported that he is actuated or motivated and governed either by covetous or ambitious designs. It is also currently reported that he said this or that ridiculous or blasphemous thing. There be some who heard him say what he never dreamed of, and others stand prepared to be godfathers to the lie and add another of their own invention, and so abroad the slander flies and opposition finds barbed shafts to fling at the too valiant champion. I think the man is speaking out of his own experience there. This is uh, typical of the way that Spurgeon was treated not just when he first arrived on the London scene, but for for years afterwards. When there is no opposition from the infernal powers, though, it's because there is nothing to oppose. That's a lesson well worth learning, for very often when we as pastors and preachers, as church members, feel the antagonism of the adversary, when the church is assaulted, when tensions and divisions creep in, when there's antagonism from from the, the world at large or opposition from those who've up to this point named the name of Christ, we might think that something's going wrong. Not so, says Spurgeon. Something may be going right. In hell's opposition we discern a sign of hopefulness, for where that fire of malice burns against the gospel, there God's fire of grace is burning also. That's hard to take, especially when it feels like the the fire is getting hotter without than it is in our own hearts. But it's worth remembering that these uh, oppositions and antagonisms, these may be the very mark that God is truly at work in a place. We need to hold fast in the confidence that the gospel fire will win out. Then, when the fire of conversion has kindled the fire of persecution, it proves its own infinite energy by subjecting even persecution to itself. He talks about Guillaume Farel, the the Swiss preacher, who was converted to God by the sight of a martyr burnt in one of the streets of Paris. Of course, Paul himself is going to be the, the highest example of that. The Christian man who is slandered and opposed then can afford to smile with a sacred contempt at all that can be done against the gospel of Christ. The Lord can send out his warrant to arrest a ringleader in the bands of the devil and to say to him, Thou shalt be no more against me, thou art mine. Enlist beneath my banner, and from this day be a champion for the truth which thou hast despised. Never let us fear then. The fire of God which Christ has cast among us shall go on to burn, let man do what he will to quench it. So, from the history, the book, the man, the convert, the persecution, until even opposition valiantly met yields up its spoils. Now, he says, let's study more carefully the qualities of the gospel as fire. So first we've had the history, now we've got the qualities of the gospel as as fire. And he says that fire and the gospel are notable for their ethereal purity. The most refined form of idolatry that has ever existed has been the Parsi worship of fire. He's uh, making a comment here about uh, idolatry in a certain context. 
there's a kind of sentiment connected with the sun, the great parent of light and fire, which casts a halo around the error which it cannot excuse. He could have gone to, I think, probably any any number of uh, different environments in which the the sun and, and flame seem to be adored and to which men devote themselves. But he says the altar of Christianity is the person of an unseen saviour. It is purer and higher and more spiritual still. The offering of Christianity, he says, is prayer and praise. The worship of Christianity is the uprising of the heart. It is not at all a matter for the eye and hand and nostril, but altogether spiritual, sublime, elevated, pure and godlike. In that, the true gospel and fire are alike in their ethereal purity. Then the gospel is like fire because of its cheering and comforting influence. Where it's fully received into the heart, it becomes a divine source of matchless consolation. It drives away the the chill, the cold of this world. The flaming beacon guides the mariner or warns him of the rock. And the gospel becomes to us our guide through all the darkness of this mortal life. And if we cannot look into the future, nor know what shall happen to us on the morrow, yet by the light of the gospel we can see our way in the present path of duty, aye, and see our end in future immortality and blessedness. Life and immortality are brought to light by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon wants his people to, to think through this and say, yeah, my life's a testimony to this. We bear about within us this heavenly flame. It's this which cheers and guides. You have, he says, day by day found that godliness with contentment is great gain. You have learned to rejoice in the Lord always and to be happy in the favour of the Most High, in the salvation of Jesus and in the consolation of the blessed Comforter. And so you show to others that Christ has indeed sent fire upon the earth. But there's a third likeness. The gospel and the fire both possess testing qualities. There is no test like fire. Put the metal in the flame and you'll soon find out how how genuine it is and how pure it is. And that's the same with the gospel. It's like a fire, testing and trying everything in our institutions, in our churches, in our states. That which is not right is sure in the end to give way. Now many a man thinks that he carries something good within him and he wraps himself up in the robes of his own righteousness until the gospel comes and then he finds that he's naked and poor and miserable for when his soul goes into the gospel fire his heart is properly tested. All through this world of ours the gospel will burn up with unquenchable fire everything that is evil and leave nothing but that which is just and true. Even false religions which can lie down side by side with one another for they're equally a lie and have this brotherhood between them, the true religion will never rest until all superstitions are utterly exterminated and until the banner of the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, shall wave over every, over every mosque and minaret, temple and shrine. Fire is uh, intolerant in that sense. It scorches, it burns up all which is fake and false. And then the gospel is like fire in its essential aggressiveness. We know what uh, what fire does, how quickly it spreads. Spurgeon says, I've often heard this kind of theory laid down. You religionists have your own liberty. Do keep yourselves respectable and quiet and enjoy yourselves, but leave other people alone. 
You have no business to be propagandists, compassing sea and land to make proselytes. Why fall into fanaticism? Sit still now. You've cushioned seats. Be comfortable upon them. The minister has his stipend and his pulpit. Let him mind his own congregation. It will be as much as he can do if he pleases his own disciples. Why need a man become a firebrand, bigotedly intruding his peculiar views where they are not wanted? Well, that's very much the spirit of our age. Privatised religion. You, you keep what you've got, by all means, but don't you dare tell us the way that we should think or feel or act. You keep your religion to yourself. It sometimes seems like every other religion is free to trumpet itself from the housetops, but true Christianity, the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ, the, the clarity of the gospel, and the necessity of making Christ Jesus known for salvation, that is still an offence to everyone. But Christianity was not and is not something that can so soon be frozen. The gospel of Jesus is a thing of fire and it must go forth through Jerusalem, through Judea, out to the, the very ends of the earth by way of Samaria. And he again turns back to the scriptures and, and there's Saul of Tarsus and off he goes and he's working in Macedonia. Then he's in Athens. Off he goes to Rome. Right away in Spain, the new religion is gaining ground and the gospel goes on and on and on because the true religion of Jesus Christ is essentially warlike. Now, it does not mean that it indulges in carnal warfare because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but it is spiritually warlike. And as the heathens spoke of Minerva leaping armed from the head of Jove, a bit of Greek legend, so did the religion of Christ spring armed from the very heart of Jesus Christ. And it stands in the midst of the world, an enemy of all unrighteousness, the foe of all oppression, the friend of the poor and needy, and the enemy of everything that is at enmity to God. And you are no Christian, says our preacher, if such is not your Christianity. For Jesus Christ brought not a slumbering faith, but fire into the earth. My friends, if our Christianity can coexist with falsehood and foolishness, with superstition and paganism, with godlessness and immorality, then it is not the Christianity of the scriptures. Then again, our religion is like a fire because of its tremendous energy and its rapid advance and really is rolling on from the previous point. When you deal with fire, you cannot calculate. You are among the imponderables and the immeasurables. I wish we thought of that when we're speaking of religion. You cannot calculate concerning its spread. Truth isn't a mechanism. It doesn't depend upon engineering. A thought in one mind? Why not the same in 50? That thought in 50 minds, why not in 50,000? The truth which affects a village and stirs it from end to end, why not a town, a city, why not a nation, why not all nations? This is the spread of the gospel and it's like flame. Once the fire takes hold, you don't know what it will catch. Fire can do anything, he says, so with the gospel of Jesus. Given but an earnest preacher, given but the truth fully declared, given an earnest people determined to propagate the gospel, and I can understand a nation converted to God, I and all the nations of the earth, suddenly shaken with the majesty of truth. Once more, under this second point, in which the, the resemblance between fire and the gospel are being brought forth, that the gospel resembles fire in that it will ultimately prevail. 
The seas of iniquity stay for a while, the fire of the gospel from spreading, but that sea shall be utterly removed by the energy of divine truth. And the day will come when the fire of the gospel will make the whole world to be a burnt offering unto the Lord Most High. So we have courage and we look forward to the progress of Christ's kingdom. What does that mean for us? Well, as so often, Spurgeon is now going to drive that home into the hearts of the saints. If the gospel be thus like fire, let us catch the flame. If this fire shall really burn within us, we shall become from this very moment fearless of all opposition. That retired friend will loose the, lose the strings which bind his tongue. He will feel that he must speak as God shall bid him, or if he cannot speak, he will act with all his might in some other way to spread abroad the savour of Emmanuel's name. That coward who hid his head and would not own his profession, when the fire burns, will feel that he had rather caught opposition than avoid it. There may be some young man here who's about to take up his cross. It's come to this point that he must decide which it shall be. Let him do so without fear, for the master whom he serves will bear him through all opposition. Now does it sound to us as if the church to which we belong, as if we ourselves have caught the flame, and it's made us fearless of all opposition? Or do we still feel cool and, and dark? Cast in your lot, dear friends, with Christ, urges Spurgeon, and fling down the gauntlet to the world. Bear in mind, this is a man who's done this for himself. Let them say their worst. Let them howl. Let them bark. I let them bite. Little shall it matter to the man to whom persecution has become an occasion for rejoicing, because now he's made like unto the prophets which were before him. Then again, if we catch the flame, having defied all opposition, we shall weary utterly of the mere proprieties of religion, which at this present time crush down like a nightmare the mass of the religious world. Do you believe, asks Spurgeon, that if Christ Jesus came into this world, he would call nine-tenths of our modern religion the Christianity which he preached? Is it the least like his own zeal? Many who think it to be all the faith that Christianity requires to put on your best things on Sunday and to go to your place of worship with your Bible or your hymn book or your prayer book and sit there decorously and look at other people's bonnets and dressings, dresses and then come home again. Others think it's enough to listen to the sermon discreetly, perhaps make a few observations upon the discourse, or none, because there's not enough in the sermon to be a peg to hang a remark upon. Spurgeon's saying so often people are just playing a religious game, and you do not play with fire. Fire actually burns. It actually has an effect. Some deny the faith, selfishness, reigns supreme, covetousness, adultery or murder uh, run rampant. Oh, brethren, he says, it's sickening work to think of your cushioned seats, your chants, your anthems, your choirs, your organs, your gowns and your bands, and I know not what besides, all made to be instruments of religious luxury, if not of pious dissipation, while ye need far more to be stirred up and incited to holy ardour for the propagation of the truth as it is in Jesus. Oh, we got a cold and sleepy Christianity, then it's no Christianity at all. Spurgeon says one would think Christ came into the world to administer laudanum to the sons of men, to give them a sedative, or to prepare down for all sleepers, make a comfortable bed. 
but instead of it, he came to send fire on the earth. And where his true gospel is, it's a fire that will not rest and be quiet amidst mere proprieties and rounds of performances. Then he says, not only shall we become dissatisfied with mere proprieties, but we shall all of us become instant in prayer. If the gospel grips us, we'll begin pleading with God. If the fire truly burns in our spirit, that it will burn elsewhere. Will not thy gospel prevail? Why are thy chariots so long in coming? Why doth not Christ reign? Why is not the truth triumphant? Does this bother us? Are we grieved by this? And then it will lead us to eager service. You feel now all that that pressure of the, the exposition beforehand, the likeness of the gospel to, to fire, the way in which that's been proved through its history. Having this fire in us, he says, we shall be trying to do all we can for Christ. We shall never think we've done enough. We shall start uneasily if for a moment we rest. We shall seek, if possible, to snatch souls from the burning, to preach Christ where he's not known, and to bring him fresh jewels for his crown. Brothers, he goes on, this is a large church, numbering now nearly 4,000 souls. And if you grow cold and lose your earnestness, I'd sooner have 40 warm-hearted men and women than the whole multitude of you if you are chilled. You see, it's not just numbers. It's the, it's the zeal, it's the ardency, it's the earnestness of the saints. For what are you who are cold and indifferent, but a clog upon the chariot? Are you one of those in the church to which you belong, just a break on the progress of the gospel, or are you catching the flame? The warm-hearted, earnest, thorough Christian, that's the life of the church. And if we all cannot be as we would, may the fiery spirits among us never be retarded by those who are more lethargic. I well remember a lady some years ago now, after a, a sermon, just wishing that she could pour a bucket of cold water over the preacher's head. She actually told him that to his face. What a misery. What a fearful desire to bring down the the holy flame of the gospel. Oh, lovers of Christ, then, says Spurgeon, come and bow at his feet and ask him to let his love supply you with fire this morning. Come to the pierced one. Gaze upon the thorn crown. Look into the hole which the soldier's spear has made. Gaze into the nail prints and say unto your soul, Now for the love I bear his name. What was my gain? I count my loss. My former pride I call my shame and nail my glory to his cross. Yes, and I must and will esteem all things but loss for Jesus' sake. Oh, may my soul be found in him and of his righteousness partake. That's the heart that has been set aflame by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the the great appetite and the wish of those who've begun to see and to feel something of the, the heat and the light of the truth as it is in Jesus. May this be its effect upon us. May we become fearless with regard to opposition, weary of mere proprieties in religion, instant in prayer and eager in our service to Jesus Christ. This is not unusual Christianity. This is not extraordinary Christianity. This is simply Christianity itself. May God make it so for each one of us. I hope you'll join us again next time. Next week, we're reading from Sermon 857 to 863, and our featured sermon is going to be Sermon 858, The Fullness of Jesus 
the treasury of the saints. And there, as here, Spurgeon will essentially resolve everything into the, uh, the, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So please do, uh, if you like this podcast, if you're appreciating what you're hearing, recommend it to others, subscribe or write a review on your favorite podcast app, especially if you live outside the US, that apparently makes a real difference. And if you want to hear more like this, then go to mediagratii.org, where I'm persuaded you'll find more God-exalting, Christ-honoring and spirit-dependent material. May God bless you with it, and uh, I trust that you'll join us again in the future. Thanks for listening today.